This morning, we're going to approach our text a little differently than we typically do. And there's a reason for this. The section of scripture we're going to be looking at, one particular story, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, is so filled with meat, with application, that it would be kind of hard to work our way through the story, throw in the application as it arises, and not get lost in the process. So this morning, we're just going to work our way through the text, and then at the end, we'll close with some points of application, the meat of this particular story. Now, since Saul had initiated this great persecution in Jerusalem, Philip, our man Philip, has been the central figure behind this great spiritual awakening that was taking place in a region known as Samaria. Today, it's the West Bank. Now, while it's true that years before, Jesus had planted the seeds for this future awakening through his interactions with the woman at the well, it is crystal clear from our text that Philip had been called and commissioned by God to be his man to reap the harvest. Jesus sowed seeds Philip sent to reap. Now, because of his obedience, to do which would be at the time the unthinkable, to cross centuries-old racial and religious prejudices that existed between the Hebrews and the Samaritans, because he was willing to do this and be obedient, Philip found himself right in the middle of this incredible work of God. Now, we don't know how many people responded. We know the whole city was filled with joy, but we don't have a numerical value on the converts, but we do know that many people responded to his preaching, enough that the numbers created such a buzz that word had gotten back to the apostles who are still hunkered down in Jerusalem. They heard of this revival. They heard of this awakening. They heard of this work, and they had to go see it for themselves. To say that the Samaritan church was trending would have been an understatement. This church was bursting at the seams. Attendance, conversion rates were higher than ever. This church was new. She was fresh. And because Philip was spearheading the work, he's immediately thrown, cast into the spotlight. I can see Relevant Magazine running a cover story featuring this new, non-apostolic, boundary-pushing, renegade pastor, pushing cross-cultural boundaries. I can see Zondervan and Tyndall House fighting to secure his first book deal. Resurgence, Catalyst, were in a race to book Philip as the headliner for their next national conference. Even the Christian rapper Lecrae was trying to get Philip to do a spoken word intro for his next single. This church was rocking and rolling, and Philip's ministry had never been better. That's the context. Verse 26, though. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and said, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. Wow. I mean, you want to talk about a wicked curveball. I mean, God abruptly interrupts this season of vibrant ministry by sending an angel to Philip with instructions. First, the instructions tell him 
to leave Samaria. And if that weren't enough, the particulars of these new orders, look at it again. The destination wouldn't be the populated cities of Jerusalem or Gaza, which you would think as an evangelist, that would be the logical choice. I mean, Philip's got plans for an international crusade. So going to Jerusalem, going to Gaza, one of those two destinations, that would make sense. But no, where's the location that God is sending Philip? Not to these populated cities, but instead to the road between the two. Now, this was such a bizarre and strange directive from God that if you look at the text, Luke, our author, he goes out of the way to let us know how strange it is. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, arise, go towards the south along the road, which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, in quotations. And if that's not crazy enough, let me just let you know that this trek of road is desert. It's nothing but desert. I mean, on the surface, these instructions don't make any sense at all, do they? I mean, why would God remove Philip from the midst of this incredible work that's happening in Samaria? An awakening, and Philip's in the middle of it. People are giving their lives to Jesus, and those are being baptized, and there's discipleship happening, and he's teaching. The, I mean, he's in the middle of it. Why move Philip? Why not send someone else, right? I mean, why would God, if you're gonna move the evangelist, then choose to move him to a location that is literally unpopulated? There is no one there. Really weird place to send an evangelist whose knack is sharing the gospel to people and then getting saved. Just bizarre, it's strange. Seems like the road between Jerusalem and Gaza would be the last place that you would send a gifted evangelist, but knowing his destination, getting his marching orders, what does Philip do? We're told that he arose and went. Philip, he abruptly leaves Samaria. The idea is that, you know, he didn't wait to the next Sunday to let the folks know what he was doing. It was like he was told to go. And what does he do? He gets up and he goes. It's, it's seemingly unannounced. So he leaves Samaria. Now, God didn't tell him to go to the road between Samaria and Jerusalem. It was the road between Jerusalem and Gaza, which means that Philip leaves Samaria and he treks down back to Jerusalem, which is bizarre, right? Because the beginning of our chapter, why is Philip in Samaria to begin with? He's in Samaria because there was a great persecution of the saints in Jerusalem. So he has to go back through the war zone to then be obedient to the call of God. He gets to the road. He leaves Jerusalem. He's in the desert. He's on a lone, a long and lonely walk. It's hot, musty. Nobody's there. I can imagine as Philip is walking, he's thinking, I really hope that I that I heard from God. Like, I really hope that that wasn't the burrito I ate the night before. You know, like, this didn't make any sense when I got the command, and now I'm in the desert, and it still doesn't make any sense because there's no one here. A revival among the cacti. I mean, like, what am I doing here? But we're told that behold, 
I, I like this word behold. It literally means consider that why Philip was on this particular road, a man of Ethiopia. It's kind of like it was a shocking moment. He immediately gets up and he goes, he's on this road and behold, while he's walking, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all of her treasury, this man had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning now and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, what do we know of this particular man? We're told he was a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority. He served under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. He had charge of all of her treasury. Luke tells us this Ethiopian man had great authority. And his great authority stemmed from the reality that he served as some type of secretary of the treasury under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. This means that this man was wealthy, he was powerful, he was influential. Now, Candace is not an actual name of a particular queen of the Ethiopians. As a matter of fact, it's a title. All of the queen, queens of Ethiopia were known as Candace. It was a title, not a specific designation of a particular lady. We also know that he was a eunuch. In the ancient world, this was typical. This was the normal plight of a man who was serving in such close proximity to a very powerful woman. All I'll say concerning him being a eunuch is that it was a bummer. We also are told that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, we don't know what his motivation was or, or what spawned the inclination, but he travels 200 miles, give or take, from Ethiopia with a singular desire to do what? We're told in the text, to worship the true God of Israel. But it's unlikely that his experience had been a positive one. You kind of note how Luke's very brief. He's saying he was on his way to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning, which means that whatever happened was short-lived, which would make sense. I mean, to begin with, because he was of African descent, and you can debate whether or not he, he had Jewish blood in him or not. It's a fascinating study on your own about the Ethiopian Jews, which do exist. But he's of African descent regardless. The furthest end of the temple he could go, because he's a Gentile, would be the outer court of the Gentiles. And if you know anything of scripture, anything of first century uh, temple protocol, man, this place was a zoo. Like they had turned the outer courtyard of the Gentiles into, as Jesus called, a den of thieves. This was the only place Gentile proselytes could come to worship to encounter God, but they had turned the courtyard into a, a, a carnival, a, it, into a zoo. It was a place where people were buying and people were selling, and there was this whole temple racket taking place. So this Ethiopian man, a Gentile, the furthest into the temple to encounter God he can go is the outer courtyard, but it would be very difficult to encounter God when you're in the midst of Barnum and Bailey Circus, which is what's happening here. So if at a minimum, that's his exposure going into the outer court, he left very empty, very disappointed. This is the temple. This is the place you're supposed to come and encounter God, but this is what this has turned into. Secondly, if the Jewish leaders had actually um, applied the particulars of the law to this Ethiopian man, he wouldn't have been allowed even in the outer court of the Gentiles. According to Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, we're told that he who is emasculated by crushing or mutilated 
shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, they might have given him an exception, a pass, because of his influence, because of his wealth, because of his power. But if they did follow the particulars, he doesn't even get into the outer courtyard because he's a eunuch. So either way, he had come to Jerusalem to worship, but in all likelihood, his experience had been subpar. He hadn't actually been able to encounter the living God. And we're told that he was thus returning. He's sitting in his chariot and he's reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, though he had been turned away from the temple or at a minimum left disappointed by the charade of the outer courtyard, there was a positive note from his experience. And that was the fact that because of his money, because of his wealth, he was able to procure a copy of the prophet Isaiah. Now, obtaining ancient scrolls, that was very expensive. It was very rare because it's all handwritten. I mean, it took copious amounts of time to replicate text. So for him to get, to get his hands on, to take back with him a copy of the prophet Isaiah shows some dedication to get answers. He had come to worship, he's turned away, but he buys the word and he takes it with him. And we're told that he's reading, he's reading it. It's not, it's not just one thing to have a Bible, but it's another thing to read it. You know, it's clear from the text, from what Luke tells us, that this Ethiopian was a noble man on a noble quest. He's searching for truth. The world, all that she offered, had left him empty. We know that because why come? Like he's an Ethiopian, he's got power, influence, everything he needs. And yes, there's something missing in his heart, something missing in his life. Something produced a desire to go to Jerusalem. So he's searching. The world had left him empty, but religion and all that it had promised had left him wanting. The world left him empty, religion left him wanting. But this man was determined to have a real life-altering encounter with God. Now, as he makes his way out of Jerusalem, heading back to Ethiopia on this particular road, it's kind of a disappointing scenario for him, but he's got two things going for him. One, he's digging into God's word. You can never go wrong there if you're a seeker. Two, while we'll see that he needed someone to help him make sense of the things that he's reading, he's reading Isaiah, and he's like, I don't get it at all. Like, this is just, I'm just, ah. I, he's reading the word, but he's struggling to understand the word. He's grappling with the concepts of the word. It's as though this Ethiopian man, what he needed was someone to help him understand what God was saying through the prophet Isaiah. It just so happens that God was one step ahead. For verse 29 tells us that the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. Now you gotta get yourself in the scene here for a moment. There's Philip walking his way on this dirt road. He's at the height of ministry. People are clamoring for his attention. His calendar's filling up with speaking engagements. He's got all his ducks in a row and God says, go, and he does. And now he's here on this road, a desert road, a deserted road, and he's walking, kicking rocks as he's making his way, wondering what in the world am I doing here? God, what's your plan? When 
this chariot with probably an entourage comes speeding by. Now, I think that the chariot goes speeding by Philip because how else would Philip have seen the chariot? If, if the Ethiopian had left before Philip had, right, then the Ethiopian would be way further ahead of Philip if he's just walking. So he's just kind of cruising along, boom, this chariot, this un- lonely deserted road, this guy comes flying by. That's peculiar. That's really interesting. That catches his attention. I mean, this would have been the equivalent of you being on this deserted back road in West Texas where there's nothing but cow pastures and desert and nothing but road. And all of a sudden, as you're making your way down this road, just to your left, honking horns, blowing past you is an entourage of Escalades, all blacked out windows, like 10 in a row. I mean, you would be like, I wonder what that is, right? In the middle of West Texas, has there been another terrorist attack and this is the president trying to escape to some bunker? I mean, all kinds of things would be flying through your mind because this was weird. But look at what God tells him. Luke says that the spirit told Philip to go near and overtake This word overtake, it literally means to attach yourself to the chariot. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and said, do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, None of you actually understand what's happening here because none of you were laughing hysterically while we're reading this text because what's happening here, like, it's unbelievable. So you're Philip making your way on this desert road. Boom, chariot goes flying by, catches your eye, catches your attention, and you're looking up and the spirit tells you, gives you another command, said, go from... Samaria to this road, you're on the road, and then you see this chariot blow by, and the Spirit tells you, go and do what? Catch it. So what does Philip do? All right, God, I'm with you. He runs. I, how fast this chariot is? I mean, we don't know anything other than he was told to run. And so he's in the middle of the desert running to catch a chariot. But note, so Philip ran to him. So at some point he catches the chariot. But God didn't tell him what to do next. All God said is go overtake the chariot. Don't stop the chariot. Like he's going one command, one command, one command at a time. God said, come to this road. I came to this road. God said, catch the chariot. I'm catching the chariot. What's up, man? Like we have no idea how long the chariot's going and Philip's just running, running next to it. You're on a deserted road. How creepy is that if you're the Ethiopian? You're there just reading your Bible and you kind of look out the window and there's this Jew just running next to you. And it would be like that awkward moment where you're sitting there. You know when you pull up to a stoplight and you're like, I think the person is staring at me. Like you get this like sixth sense that someone is there looking at you and you're like, 
I don't want to make eye contact. I can't make eye contact. If I make eye contact, this could get really awkward. It could get really weird. But I really need to know if they're staring at me. And you're kind of in that tense mode. And you decide you're going to do one of those, like, uh, I'm going to reach for something in the back of the car so my eyes can, like, you're, whoa. Yep, staring at me. Like, that's what's happening here. The Ethiopian is reading the Bible, and there's Philip running, running. Now, I think the Ethiopian's smart because the one thing he doesn't do, he doesn't stop. I mean, he doesn't stop. He's like, I got to find out what's up with this guy, right? But we're not stopping until I'm sure. Because look at the deck. So Philip ran to him. That's all God said. He's just running. And he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. So Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? Now, if I were to flip to a book of the Bible. I'm not going to tell you what book of the Bible it is, and I'm just going to start reading it out loud. How long do you think it would take till you could recognize what book of the Bible I was reading from? Five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes? It's not as though the, the Ethiopian is like, Isaiah chapter 21, verse 1. He's just reading. And Philip gets to this point he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. So Philip's like, oh, he's reading Isaiah. That's pretty cool. He's just listening, overhearing, chugging along. And what happens? Well, the Ethiopian decides to have a conversation with him. Never stops. While all of this conversation is happening, Philip is chugging and the Ethiopian is sitting in the chariot going through the deserted back roads. And he says, how can I unless someone guides me? And at this point, we're told that he's like, hey, stop the chariot. Asks Philip to come in. And I can imagine the relief. Like Philip's like, I'm going to have to preach a sermon while I'm running next to this guy. Like, I'm not told to stop the chariot. I'm just told to run. And I'm over, I'm, I'm having this dialogue. It, it, like if you're Philip, you're at some point like, spirit, can you tell him to stop the stupid chariot? Like that would be helpful sweats pouring down his face. Not to mention, this is like first century Middle East. So he's kind of wearing a robe that he's now got hiked up, like up to his waist, and his like chicken white legs are just blaring out in the sun. I mean, this scene to me is absolutely hysterical. And it's, it's incredible because of Philip's just simple obedience. But he asks him to come and sit with him. Verse 32, that the place in the scripture where he was reading was this, it was Isaiah 53, that he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And in his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And so the eunuch, he asks Philip, Literally, he says, I beg of you, of whom does the prophet say this? Is he speaking of himself or some other man? So Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, I got to make kind of a side point here. I told you that we're going to work our way through the text. We'll get to application later. But this example set by Philip, it's so simple. Like, like the evangelism opportunity. Here's Philip and here's a seeker. 
and Philip is going to share Christ with him. This model that we find here is so simple that every Christian, every one of you, like you don't need a theological degree or go to some Bible college to share Christ, to preach Jesus. Like all Philip does, he doesn't go through some like, like in-depth prophetical exercise of laying this out and laying that out and like, okay, let me explain to you eschatology. Like none of this matters. He's not getting into an old earth, young earth kind of debate. He didn't even care about like once saved, always saved, predestination, free will. He's avoiding all of it. And he's just telling him about Jesus because it was all said and done what this man needed. The world had left him empty. Religion had proved worthless. What the man needed is an encounter with a person, Jesus. And Philip's like, let me tell you, not only is this passage speaking about this man, Jesus, but let me tell you a whole bunch else about him. The essence of what Philip communicates as he simply says who Jesus is. I hope you can tell someone who Jesus is. And then what he's done and what he's doing. It's a simple enough example that we can all be used in the same way. Well, verse 36, that as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. It's a good observation. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with your heart, you may. And he answered and he said, I believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah is the son of God, that he's God. To be the son of something is to be of the same nature as that thing. If you're a son of a giraffe, you're not an elephant, you're a giraffe. If you're the son of man, you're a man. But if you're the son of God, you are God. By nature, he's God. So his declaration is this man, Jesus, he is the Christ the savior of the world, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he's God. So the Ethiopian commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he was baptized. Now, now let me make just two side observations, two points here that's, that's essential for the text, our understanding. But please note that the man's public identification with Jesus, which was his baptism, came after his personal acceptance of Jesus, his profession of faith. You see that in the text. Before he's baptized, he makes a declaration of belief. Saving faith produced a desire to be publicly baptized, not the other way around. Baptism was a sign of salvation, not the initiator of salvation. Also note that they went down into the water. Philip didn't throw some fairy dust at him. They went down into the water. And I won't get into the whole debate on sprinkling versus dunking, but they went down into the water to be baptized. Seems pretty self-explanatory to me. Don't understand why there's such a debate. Well, verse 39, they come out of the water and the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. But he just went on his way rejoicing and Philip was found at Azostus. 
And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. (laughs) Uh, What? Like, that's a head-scratcher, isn't it? Like, you're kind of tracking through the chapter, and then you get to that. The Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. Apparently, as soon as the Ethiopian emerged from the water, he goes down, he comes up. When he comes up, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. This phrase, caught away, is harpazo. It means to snatch out. The Greek phrase translated into the medieval Latin is the word raptura, harpazo to raptura, and raptura is where we derive our English word rapture. Now, if you're flipping through the Bible, like I hear a lot about this rapture thing. HBO's got this weird show, The Left Behind, like like the leftovers, not even the left behind, the leftovers, and like that's just all trippy, and this is weird, and the show kind of stinks, and I hope it gets canceled, but, but I kind of want to know what's going on with it, and you're like, what does the Bible have to say about that old rapture? And you're flipping through, and like, you're like, where's the chapter on rapture? It's not there, and then you're like, well, I'll do a little word study, and you kind of flip to the back, and you're like, clearly, such a big deal. Wait a second. There's, huh? They just, there's not the, what? Hmm. No rapture in there. Rainbow. Rained. Raised. Raised. Raises. Ran. Hmm. There is no word rapture in your Bible, which is what kind of makes some of this confusing. But in the medieval Latin, there's raptura, and in the Greek, there's harpazo. So the concept exists, this is how we get the word. So you don't find it, but when you find this phrase, caught away, this is where it comes from. Paul uses the same word. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, he says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, harpazo, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, because the eunuch saw Philip no more, it can be reasoned that this act of snatching Philip away, initiated by the Spirit of the Lord, resulted in his body physically disappearing from one location, only to then reappear in another location. That is what the text is saying. As trippy as it sounds, that is what the text is communicating. Now, while the first Thessalonians passage, Paul says that there will come a day when the living Christians will experience a similar event whereby our bodies are caught up to be with Jesus. In this instance, Philip is not caught up, but he's caught away from the baptism scene with the Ethiopian, only to be physically placed somewhere else on earth. It's not Azotos. That's where they found him. We have no idea where he ended up. It's interesting. I love how David Guzik describes this event. He says that Philip was raptured horizontally. And I kind of like that. Now, before you, and we have a skeptical crowd here at 316. I get it. I love it. It's how I think too. Before you write off this passage as being nonsensical, like the stuff of science fiction, 
Beam me up, Scotty. Please note that scripturally, this event is not without precedent. Not only in 1 Thessalonians will it happen again, but in Genesis 5, verse 24, we're told that Enoch, like in the middle of this genealogy of names that you often skip, like you're like, oh, a list of names going to the next chapter because I can't pronounce any of them. Like right in the middle of this genealogy, you get this, this, this verse that Enoch walked with God and was not for God took him. So Enoch went on a walk with God and never came back and they went to look for him. And the explanation given is that God was like, yo, instead of going home, come hang out with me. Boom, he's gone. No one can find his body. Also interesting in John chapter six, it's recorded that when the disciples, you know, one of the instances where they're sent in the boat across the Sea of Galilee, that they're in the middle of the sea, seven miles, three and a half mile marker. Great storm is arising, a tempest, right? Knocking the boat around, it's a crazy scene. And then Jesus comes walking across the water, right? That we're told that immediately when they received him into the boat, the boat was at the land where they were going. A lot of people like pass over that. Like what's being stated, Jesus gets in the boat. Not only is the wind, the waves calm, the boat is teleported three and a half miles to the shore instantly. Now, I can admit this is kind of a trippy concept, trippy idea, raises some red flags, so to speak. But understand what's taking place here is not outside the bounds of physics, at least theoretically. Very recently, there was a groundbreaking experiment where scientists were able to transport atoms three meters with 100% accuracy. They were able to teleport an atom from one location to another location, not a very great distance, mind you, but they were still able to do it. Now, Professor Hansen from the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands, he said this. I've included a leak to the article in C316.tv. But he says, if you believe we are nothing more than a collection of atoms strung together in a particular way, then in principle, it should be possible to teleport ourselves from one place to another. In practice, it's extremely unlikely. But to say that it never could work is dangerous. I would not rule it out because there's no fundamental law of physics preventing it. So the idea of Philip, boom, from one moment going to another location, like on a molecular level, disappearing and then reappearing, crazy, trippy, but doesn't defy physics. Now we can't do it, but shocker, God can, and I don't say that to like skirt the issue, but really, if you believe in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that he spoke all things into existence out of nothing. Then moving Philip along a little quicker than the speed of light seems within his playbook. Now the story, it closes with the Ethiopian going on his way rejoicing, and Philip beginning in this northern town of Gaza, working his way along the Mediterranean coast, preaching in all the cities, before finally settling down in the northern seaport town of Caesarea. Philip will come back into the text later in the book of Acts. He will have an interesting encounter, uh, ironically, with Paul, the very man who 
initiated Philip's whole movements because of his persecution will end up coming and staying in Philip's house. He's the only person called an evangelist in scripture, Philip the evangelist. In addition to that, he'd have five uh, uh, prophetess uh, daughters. Very cool man, very cool story, but we'll talk about him uh, later on. Let's get to the application with the time that we have left. First, I can't help but note that a work of God, if it's a work of God, depends on God, not man. You see, on the surface, it makes no sense why God would call Philip out of such an incredible work in Samaria, unless Philip wasn't all that important to the work. You see, since what was happening in Samaria was a genuine work of God, then the work depended on God, not Philip. He was just an instrument, just a tool, You see, Philip was able to pick up and go without a second's hesitation because he trusted that God knew what he was doing and the work in Samaria would continue fine without him. You know, sadly, too many people, pastors, but also the laity, the congregation, have tricked themselves into believing that the work that God is doing is somehow dependent upon their involvement. The Calvary 3.16, may none of us buy into the lie that God's work depends on any of us. If it's God's work, then it doesn't depend on you or me or any of us if it's God's work. You see, I found that the quickest way to evaluate whether or not a ministry is a work of man or a genuine work of God is to ask yourself, What would happen if the man in the spotlight was removed from the work? Would the work continue or would it come screeching to a halt? The second point of application that jumps out at me is that God has a plan behind every command. I kind of like that it rhymed. God has a plan behind every command. Now, while Philip only saw a lonely, deserted road stretching from Jerusalem to Gaza, God knew, right, that there would be a man from Ethiopia traveling the same path who needed someone to share the gospel with him. It was another harvest primed for the reaping. Though many in the same position would hesitate to make the kind of move that Philip did, especially when you consider that his obedience His obedience took him from a position of security to uncertainty, from a sure thing to a who knows, from the hotbed of ministry to a hot desert. But once Philip heard from God, he simply acted in obedience. It's amazing to me. Philip is only armed. When he leaves Samaria, he's only armed with a command. God said, go. Philip went. He didn't need an explanation. He didn't ask for the details. All Philip needed as a servant was his marching orders. What faith. Philip trusted God. He lived a life of complete surrender. His life was no longer his own. He was bought at a price. God said, go to Samaria. He went to Samaria. God said, go to a deserted road. He went to a deserted, it didn't matter. God would evaluate Philip not on what he did, but his faithfulness in doing what God told him to do. 
He was a man who walked by faith in the purest sense. You know, it's interesting, but we find in this story another example of what I would call progressive revelation, which is an unavoidable component of the life that we live in Christ. We want the whole picture, don't we? God, I want to obey you. I want my life to be used by you. You just give me the end, the destination, and we'll go. Give me the plan. Let's get on the same page. But this whole story begins with God telling him to simply go to the desert, to a specific destination with a simple command, with no idea why. It's like Abraham. Leave, go to a land I will show you. And he was obedient. Philip went to the road. He traveled south as he was told. He wanted God to use him, and he waited for further instructions. And as a result of his obedience, to be exactly where God told him to be, the Spirit broke the silence with a second command to catch the chariot. And once again, Philip followed. He obeyed. He caught the chariot. He proceeded to run alongside of it. And it was only then, after two steps of blind obedience, that the picture begins to gain clarity when he hears this man reading from the prophet Isaiah. You see, Philip understood what we need to understand this morning. And that is the best place for you to be is the will of God. I think we can all agree on that. But the only way to be in the will of God is to obey the simple commands of God. Not the whole picture, but just the first command. And you obey until there's the second one, until there's the third one. Always remember, obedience to the simple commands of God is the only key by which you can unlock God's ultimate plan for your life. The third thing that jumps out at me is that we must learn to be sensitive to the voice of God's Spirit. You know, the, the obvious question that should jump off the page is when you read this, this, this line, the Spirit said to Philip, go. Like, what? Like, how was he so certain that this was God's voice? Like, how did he hear the Holy Spirit? Like, if I knew how to hear the Holy Spirit, if I knew it was, like, maybe this would all work. You know, it's unlikely that Philip received an audible directive. Like, he's just cruising down, chariot blows by, and then the voice from heaven, yo, that's your cue, go catch it. More than likely, it's just some inner sense. It's hard to explain, but I'm convinced that the answer in regards to how you can hear the Holy Spirit lies in four things. First, you need to be spirit-filled. Two, you need to have a desire to listen. Three, we need to develop a familiarity with his voice. And how do you do that? It's right here. The Spirit of God will never contradict the Word of God. And the more you tune in to the heart of God, the voice of God, the words of God, that you begin to recognize the voice of God through his Spirit. But fourthly, it's having a boldness to act upon a particular impression. Last week, I was working on my Bible study and the Lord laid a specific person on my heart who hadn't been to church in some time. And in a step of faith, I felt like the Spirit told me to reach out to this person. I responded to the Lord's leading. 
I dropped this person a Facebook message that read, the Lord laid you on my heart this evening and I felt compelled to reach out and let you know we miss seeing you around C316. I pray you're doing well. Just felt this, I was working on my Bible study, I just felt this, this inside of me voice. I can't explain what it, just this impression. This, the, the name popped into my head, I hadn't seen this person. Zach, do something, act. Immediately I got a response. Said, pray for good health for me. I'll be coming soon. Summers are almost over and I'll, I'll be getting back soon. So I responded, you okay? I will absolutely be praying. Get back soon then. This is what's interesting. This person wrote, I hope so. I've prayed all week long and you sent this to me. So I'm gonna take it as a sign that the good Lord is hearing my prayers. I replied, yes, exclamation point. Jesus hears your prayers and has such incredible plans for your life if you'll only let him. Let go and let God, much grace. The final exhortation was, thank you, Zach, you're so right. God spoke to me. And how do I know God spoke to me? Well, the Lord blessed me with the opportunity to see an immediate result. Like, wow, I'm gonna... I've been praying all week that the Lord would, would do something. And then out of the blue, I get, I'm going to take that as a sign that God's hearing me. And then speaking to you to get in touch with me, whoa, God's real. But the more we learn that voice, the more we should act on it. Here's my exhortation. If you feel as though the Holy Spirit is telling you to reach out to someone, what do you really have to lose by acting on the impression? If you're in the drive through line at Mickey D's and you look over at the person you're going to hand your credit card to and you just, something happens in your heart and you're like, I just want to tell you that Jesus loves you. What's the harm in that? Like, I think we should learn to be bold and to act upon these impressions. Fourth, just two more quickly. God uses believers to reach seekers. No, God didn't send the angel. God sent Philip. And one of the clear lessons we learn from this story is that God evaluates ministry opportunities much differently than we do. Though it's true God sent Philip to Samaria because a harvest was ripe for reaping. It's also true, equally true, that God sent Philip to this desert road because there was a harvest that was ripe for reaping. You see, from God's perspective, one opportunity was not greater than the other opportunity, which is why I don't find it to be an accident that God deliberately uses the same man for both tasks. While mass evangelism, what we see in Samaria, undoubtedly brought God glory, it's evident from our text that individual evangelism was just as important to the heart of God. And I love that about God. After declaring in Matthew 18, verse 11, for the son of man has come to save that which was lost, Jesus says in the next verse, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, that he does not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying. God has a heart for the one. It's clear that this Ethiopian man was a genuine seeker, desperate for God. The world had ripped him off, Religion had left him empty, but God would not stand idly by 
and allow the cries of his heart to go unanswered. In the book of Acts, we see this over and over and over again, that God responds to every person presented as a genuine seeker by sending one of his servants to preach Jesus. Peter sent to the house of Cornelius. Paul sent to the region of Macedonia. And in this instance, Philip moved from Samaria and sent to this desert road for the Ethiopian eunuch. I hope you realize God has chosen you for the same purpose. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you're a servant of the king, you have the same job. Now, if you're like me, sometimes it's so easy to become overwhelmed by the entirety of the lost world around us that we lose sight of the one lost soul right next to us. You might not have been sent to save the whole world. That's Jesus's job. But maybe you have been sent for that one person. Maybe that they moved you to a different cubicle and you're like, why? But maybe you were moved there because the person that shares the one next to you needed someone to preach Jesus. Maybe work promoted you and moved you and you didn't know why, but you find yourself next to a neighbor. May we be cognitive and aware and seek to be used to reach the one because that's how God works. And you know why? You know why God might interrupt your life to send you to some one person? That's because that person is so important to God. As important as you are. And that you could be used to share the love of Christ. I ask you to consider. We're to be Christ-like, right? It's kind of a generalized Christian principle. Consider Jesus for a moment. His experience on the cross in the midst of a divine work to save the masses. What did Jesus do? Jesus took time out of Operation Salvation to minister to the needs of just one man hanging on the cross next to him. Wow, that's awesome. Finally, if you're seeking, I've spoken mostly to believers looking at Philip, but let's look at the Ethiopian with this application. If you're seeking this morning, maybe, could it be, ask yourself, might this morning's message be God's way of letting you know that he loves you enough to send his only begotten son to die for your sins so that you might have life and that more abundantly. Maybe you've been seeking. Is it an accident that you came here on this morning for this message with this example? I hope maybe I'm that Philip running alongside of your chariot saying, hey, I'll tell you about him. I close with this exhortation. The same exhortation that Philip shared with the Ethiopian, I want to share with you. The seeker who's left empty by the world and empty by religion, if you believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you too can be saved. How incredible. So Father, we thank you for your word.